Hello, friends. We are back with episode 113 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. February is finally coming to a close, and we're getting ready for some nice spring weather, but also some spring highlights coming your way. My name is Eric Nance, and it's always a great day for me whenever I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today, my friend? Doing well. We've got uh, almost a foot of snow on the ground and still falling here over in Connecticut on the East Coast, and uh, it's almost March, so it's crazy. It's just a crazy world these days in many, many different <laughs> ways, but we're going to help you navigate through hopefully not so crazy times by listening to us, our little banter here about the latest Art Wiki highlights issue that's been curated by Colin Fay. And uh, by the way, Colin was super eager to curate this issue because he almost curated last week's issue. But uh, that's a little fun joke for you, Colin. We love your eagerness, and it's always a great time when you curate these issues. And as always, he had tremendous help from our Art Wiki team members and contributors like all of you listening around the world. And we lead off where, to me, it's always great when we see the community really step up to showcase maybe a novel use or an interesting demonstration of a package. And in this case, this particular package has, in my opinion, flown pretty under the radar in its almost seven year history. Now, Mike and I will always tell you, we love the ecosystem of HTML widgets that we can plug into Shiny applications or our Markdown or Cordal reports to give you that awesome interactivity with minimal effort. And many of these widgets, as you look at you know, how to create them, have their own, you might say, mini DSL or mini language or functional construct for how you create, say, an interactive visualization. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. It's such a varied scope of what these widgets can accomplish. And for many years, I personally have been using the highly regarded Plotly HTML widget from Carson Sievert over at Posit for converting a conventional plot that I make with ggplot2 into an interactive version. And I've had very good success with it. Now, sometimes when I have a very customized ggplot, it does run into a bit of an issue where I have to go into what I'll call the Plotly DSL to really finish it off. Well, lately, we've been seeing wider adoption of another high-quality package in this same space, authored by David Gohel, called GGIRAF or GGIRAF? I don't know. We've had this debate before. Whichever you like, you just go with it, folks. <laughs> so guess who else noticed this? Well, our friend Albert Rapp is back in the highlights. He is back again with his great blog post on a simple demonstration of how he converts a very typical ggplot into an interactive visualization with ggiraffe. I'll go with ggiraffe this time. And this can be with or without Shiny involved. And it's very simple. The blog post starts off. We have a simple ggplot of a line chart with points across. This is very easy to make. It's only a handful of lines of code. And then it is super straightforward with ggiraffe to simply turn that into an interactive version. And how you do that is simply having equivalents of some of the geoms that you use in ggplot2, like geomline or geompoint. They're just geomline interactive or geompoint interact interactive. And then once you're ready to finish it off and actually put it into your app or R Markdown or Quartal Report, 
just call the giraffe function. Give it that object that you created. And right there in the blog post, you can actually do this yourself. You can see the hover interactions are present with changing the line colors. There are other examples where it lets you put in tool tips for say hovering over a data point or hiding transparency of the other lines as you hover new ones. And all of this is very straightforward via the options syntax. Where certainly if you know a little CSS, you can really go to town with this, but it's very easy to opt into this with same defaults. Now that's already awesome. This is where I really got my money's worth, so to speak, reading Albert's post. There is another great package in the ggplot2 ecosystem by Thomas Lynn Peterson called Patchwork, which is a way where you can add, almost like adding numbers together, but actually compose multiple ggplot2 objects into one overall plot. Well, guess what? ggiraffe works exactly the same with that too. And the interactions, if your plots have common, you say groups or data points, will do the interaction interactivity across both plots. Oh my goodness, that is next level stuff. Like Albert, you won me over when you put that example in. That is that is sweet. And of course, for us shiny fans, you get to have your cake and eat it too, so to speak, because G Giraffe also has components that when you plug it into a shiny app, you can have custom inputs to figure out what the user hovered over, what the user clicked on. Again, these are staples in my Plotly workflows with Shiny, but now I can have it with G Giraffe as well. You know what this opens up, right? All those cross-linking possibilities to link that G Giraffe powered interactive visual, or maybe a DT table, a reactable table, maybe a leaflet map, you name it, you got that possibility now. So that is really, really awesome. You can even take it up another notch by doing a custom on-click event to make something happen with your app as you click through it. That is really, really intriguing. And I admit, when GGiraffe first came out, first, I didn't know it came out for a few years, but also David, to his credit, has just iterated over time, building these features every year. Every year, there's always been something new. And Albert, at the end of the post, links to David's online book. It's basically a, almost like a recipe type cookbook for building G Giraffe with a different set of plot types and the interactions with Shiny and customizations, especially if you want to take your interactions to another level. So let's hope that G Giraffe gets some high, uh, some well-deserved praise here. Albert's done an awesome job showcasing it. And certainly if you haven't tried G Giraffe before and you're making interactive visuals, and want to stay in your ggplot2 confines, this is an excellent fit for you. So needless to say, I'm a big fan of it, and I can see lots of opportunities to use ggiraffe in my future projects and reports. So Mike, are you as big of a ggiraffe fan as I am now? I am now. I think I'm converted, and embarrassingly, it's not a package that I've actually used before. I think we've come across it a few times in the highlights, and I've come across it a few times just in my own research, but but I haven't really employed it in a project yet. And I think like many people, and, and maybe you as well, Eric, I got sort of started with interactive data visualization in R by building ggplots and just tacking on Plotly's uh, ggplotly function to the end of those ggplots. And almost always, it, it gets me like 95% of the way there, but the, uh, the I guess, 
crazy attention to detail OCD person in me gets bugged by like this this just last five percent where the translation between ggplot and plotly isn't perfect and maybe there's a label or, or a fasting or, or something um, something like that 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 doesn't translate perfectly with that function um, so I've kind of I've kind of strayed away from doing that lately and either going you know just the full plotly DSL um, using the, the plotly API or using other other data viz charts, uh, data viz charting libraries um, for interactive charting lately. And um, something that just struck me about the, the G Giraffe package is, is really just its simplicity and how syntactically similar it is to ggplot. It's pretty incredible. And you know, you called this out, but but one thing I really love is the ability to leverage CSS within the R functions of the ggiraffe package. It makes it so simple. Most of the options that you can specify within the giraffe function have an argument called CSS, where you can just write your CSS right there. And if you're not comfortable with CSS yet, this, this might be a good place to get started since you don't need to create a, a whole separate CSS style sheet. That uh, might be a good intro. And then, you know, as you said, when you create a ggiraffe plot using Shiny, you get a few input variables free of charge for each plot that, that capture the selected values in the plot, the legend, or the theme. Um, and Albert has a, a GIF in the blog post that shows how he was able to lasso a group of points in a ggiraffe plot. And then the data behind those points was populated with uh, in a GT table, which is pretty cool. Um, and then, like you said, within the AES, the aesthetic mapping function in ggiraffe, um, there's an argument called onClick that lets you specify JavaScript code that gets executed on click event. Uh, another wicked handy feature, as we say uh, out in New England. So, uh, you know, th this is one that I agree is is really underrated. And it's great to see a blog post around it by Albert Rapp. And I would very much encourage, especially after reading this blog post and, and sort of getting this nice intro tutorial from, from Albert, I would very much encourage folks looking to, to build an interactive data visualization to, to leverage this package. Yeah, there's lots of possibilities here. And as I think about where I can use this, there are, there are situations I'll have in the coming months where I have to build quote unquote, a simple app, you know, nothing simple, right? Especially in my work, but one that can have the easiest way to take existing packages we created internally that produce ggplot graphics and just give it that little extra oomph, that little extra bit of interactivity without my collaborators having to be huge experts in, in Plotly or custom JavaScript. I think, think ggiraffe is gonna get us that extra, you, you said like five to 10% that sometimes you were missing. Yes, sometimes my app users will notice these little, you might call paper cuts along the way. And then I didn't have a clear answer because at that time, I, my skill set was a bit limited to solving that myself. So this is another great, great option to evaluate. And I got to be honest, I'm so impressed with David's skill set because this is the same David behind the office first, those packages that help convert or help you use our code to populate Word documents, PowerPoint slides, Excel using kind of the Microsoft or you should say the open office XML standard. That's already been a huge win for many of us in the in the trenches of industry where for better or worse, we have to live with those those um, those formats. But to see David also create what is definitely a totally different type of package, but yet with the same quality. I mean, that's a testament to his skill set. So 
David, who knows if you actually listen to this, but um, if you do, you have my you have my thanks for everything you do for the community because it's helped save me a bunch of time for sure. Absolutely, and I will I will second that. And uh, when you say for better or worse, we know which one you mean, Eric. Yeah, is there a mystery around that? I don't think so. No spoiler here. And as just as I mentioned, David has helped create quite a bit of time savings for me and a lot of my pipelines. Our next highlight is going to look at a ways to bring similar time savings in the world of machine learning, which, of course, could be a whole series of episodes to talk about the latest developments, especially as we've been hearing in the community and, and the tech sector. But there is a particular niche in machine learning that is helping teams save a bunch of time. And that is the concept of auto ML, auto machine learning pipelines. Now, as we've heard previous highlights talking about, obviously the great ecosystem around tidy models and how you can use that same technique for data wrangling and piping to do your machine learning model fits and deep learning model fits. Um, There is also a way to even make that bit easier, that whole cycle of, bringing in your data, checking, is there any outlying values? Are there any values that are completely constant? Things that could trip up a machine learning or classification model. It can take a lot of time to iterate through that quality checking, preparation, and then actually training your model and then seeing how does it perform. It's a lot of rinse and repeat over and over again, depending on how complex your inputs are. Well, what we're going to talk about today is a package that brings a lot of the auto ML functionality into the R ecosystem. Well, this highlight is a blog post from Hubert Ruchinski, hopefully I got that right, a data scientist who is showcasing the latest developments in the Forrester package, which I look back at a little history of it is actually a resurrection of sorts. Um, Hubert, along with other maintainers, actually took over maintenance of the Forrester package after development stagnated about a year and a half ago. And they've been bringing a lot of interesting features. And this blog post in particular talks about what are the unique pieces of Forrester that make this uh, an important pipeline enhancement to your machine learning workflows. It's got a lot of great quality into the package infrastructure, intuitive functions to do the training that encompasses these four or so different steps I mentioned. And one thing Nugget I really like, love to get your take on this, Mike, is the explain function. Because a lot of times we can fit these MLs, these machine learning models, and then when we actually try to explain it to a stakeholder about what that what that prediction really means, ooh, it can be rough out there. So the fact that this hooks into the Daleks or Daleks package to help build that report, to help explain the trends in that model, help explain where it got to where it needed to get to and what that prediction means in the big picture, I think is a huge step in the right direction because model explainability honestly gets glossed over quite a bit when you hear about all, I won that Kaggle competition for the best root mean square error. Well, what if you had to actually explain that in the real world? Would you be able to do that? Sometimes not. Well, maybe this package can help you enlighten your explanations along the way. But, you know, I do say this is something you probably want to use responsibly as well, because I 
I always get a little wary when you try to automate too much. And I don't necessarily think this package is, but of course you need a human involved to look at these results as you think about your machine learning pipelines and where this can fit. But again, I think this is a great step to bringing more efficiency to machine learning and certainly giving R close to equal footing in this space where admittedly Python's had a little bit of a leg up along the way here. But, you know, times are changing, folks. R is becoming an equal, equal partner in this machine learning space. So very excellent blog post, straightforward and very insightful to see what Forrester is capable of. Yeah, I agree. I'm always intrigued by auto ML packages and Forrester is particularly geared towards, uh, I think, just a few tree-based models and algorithms. And, and Forrester was developed by the mi2.ai team out of the Uni uh, Warsaw University of Technology, um, interestingly enough. And I think the blog post stems from the package just having a new release, as you said, kind of being revived. Um, and it focuses on providing automated utilities around data quality checks, data preparation, such as pre-processing and feature engineering. You know, I'm already sort of hearing in, in, in the back of my head, you know, parallels to tidy models frameworks here. And then model training and tuning um, using Bayesian optimization and random search then model evaluation as well. And, and like you said, there's those sort of four major functions the package offers, train, explain, save, and report, which I think are you know pretty self-explanatory, you know, high-level um, functionality around sort of exactly what is, is encapsulated within this package. And the blog post discusses, you know, the comparisons between Forrester and some other well-known auto, auto ML packages such as H2O, ML3R, um, and they argue that although Forrester offers less models than those other packages, it makes up for it by providing more features. And one that struck me, I know you, you really love the explain function, um, and it's it's uh, hooking into to Daleks, which is really cool that there's uh, R and Python um, implementations of that, that Daleks framework. But I really like the report function as well. It really generated some sharp looking static charts, tables, and narrative around what it sees in your data and how the model fitting process went. And, you know, maybe it's it's not perfect in the output that it provides, but it, it certainly looks like it can give you a fantastic start um, for a framework around, you know, some of that reporting um, about the statistics around how the model fitting process went. And I would imagine that you could go in and maybe edit some of the markdown that it spits out um, to supplement and add to that report. So again, I think the utilities here that we're talking about are really just time-saving utilities uh, and, and really potentially helpful. I can see myself sort of cherry picking some of these functions more so than others. Like you said, uh, whenever you're doing any auto ML, make sure that you're, you're using some level of caution, right? And, and that you are trying to do your best to oversee what's actually going on behind the scenes. Um, because a model will always, will always fit, <laughs> right? No, no matter uh, what data you throw at it for the most part. Um, so you have to make sure that you're satisfying all those assumptions, um, that go into the model fitting process along the way. Yeah. I, I, yeah, those are well, well said points. And I think the idea of transparency in the entire model fitting process is, is huge here. So that report is a great step to enable teams to quickly bring that without necessarily having to build that infrastructure themselves. 
Now, as for me, I do like to get my hands a little more customized, so to speak. So we're in the process of building those type of reports a little bit from the ground up. But using Forrester is a great set of inspiration, perhaps, for other metrics or other ways we can present those results, especially for tree-based models that are the highlight of, or to say the focus of what Forrester is all about. So you get your mix of random forest, GBM, and of course the hotness of XG boost, like all that is being thrown to the, date, to the data, so to speak. So it is um, very comprehensive and certainly for somebody that's newer to the space, I think it's a great way to get up and running quickly. And then when you need to, you can build your own customization afterwards. So again, really, really interesting stuff. And I will definitely be checking it out more as I get into ML more routinely. Well, speaking of routine, yes, I do deal with colleagues that are knee deep into the Microsoft Excel world. So I will say that this last highlight isn't really written for me specifically because I'm a little biased towards using R for my data analysis needs, as you might imagine. But you might be in the situation like me where maybe you need a few colleagues or teammates that need a little more convincing. Well, our friends at Jumping Rivers come through yet again with a great, great blog post that's tailored to that kind of advocacy of why you should use R and, and the benefits, and frankly, lots of benefits as compared to doing all of your data wrangling and data summarization in Excel itself. So this is a post by Amiro Abrahams, Hopefully I got that right. Um, and that's part one will, will be an ongoing series about the, the highlights of why R is beneficial in a spreadsheet world like we live in. Now, to me, the biggest benefit is right front and center. That's traceability and reproducibility because you could do a lot of manipulations in that magical spreadsheet and then you hand it off to somebody. Can they replicate what you did? Mm, I'm not so sure. Unless they're a, a, a wizard with Excel, they may not know heads or tails about how you got to a certain point. So the fact that scripting can document clearly all of your data munging needs, all the derivations you had to make, and the fact that I can pass that off from my computer over to Mike's computer and he will get the same result with the same set of packages, that alone to me wins it for me if I was ever on the fence. But of course, it's not just that opinion. There's a lot more interesting uh, comparisons here. Now, I'm not a point and click kind of person, as you might imagine. But yes, in Excel, to load a data set, you're going to have to point and click. And right to find that file, you might have to change the way columns are organized or change the delimiter that's involved. That's like four or five mouse clicks, mouse clicks for a messy data set. With R, just throw that into read R's read CSV or read, or even packages to import Excel files if you want to get real meta here. There are lots of ways to get your data in and exploring the data. Now, this is where a lot of Excel fans would say, oh, I can do so many great things with filtering and, and little you know organization of rows and sorting and all that. Well, guess what? I can do it both programmatically and visually. We can have straightforward R code with the tidyverse syntax to so do your arranging, do your selecting the columns that are most relevant. And I can feed that into a widget like DT 
or even a really looking Excel looking widget like R Excel to give you that spreadsheet layout as if you're in Excel itself, but it's in R folks, it's not in Excel. So you can have your cake and eat it too from a data exploration standpoint. And of course, this is where I admittedly, being fully honest, I never found it intuitive to do derivations of summary statistics in Excel. That formula interface always was buggy to me of like selecting the right range and then putting the equal sign in the right spot. I just had trouble all the time with that. So of course, I can feed that into a dplyr in R itself to do a quick summary of getting averages or standard deviations, and boom, I got my summary set all set to go. So to me, it's a slam dunk to use R for data summarization. And yes, I've already mentioned data wrangling. I think with the tidyverse, this is a solved problem now of how easy that DSL is, if you will, especially for somebody that's new to R. That's who this post is really marketed towards. I think the tidyverse is a great investment in your time. So there's loads of other examples. Again, for me, you know my viewpoint, but again, this isn't for me, this is for that skeptical colleague of yours that is holding on tight to that spreadsheet workflow. There is maybe an easier way. So Mike, I went on some hot takes there. How about you? What do you think about this? Post? No, this was this was Jumping Rivers just throwing up a softball alley-oop for, for you to dunk home, Eric, <laughs> I think, which was very nice of them. But this, this is such an obviously good idea for a blog post. I, I'm a little shocked that I don't think I've ever seen a post doing a side-by-side -side comparison of a data analysis task in R and Excel. You know, we've seen a million posts doing the same task in, in R and Python which I think is an approach that, that does a great job of showcasing the strengths and weaknesses of each language. And this blog post sort of does, does the same. Um, and it walks through the steps of loading data, visualizing summary statistics, renaming columns, sorting data by a column, dropping a column, uh, creating a new calculated column, and, and filtering data. And uh, you know the, the conclusion here is that Excel is an excellent tool because of its ease of use and, and size of its user base. But if you're trying to do any sort of data manipulation or statistical analysis as an aspiring analyst or data scientist, you're, you're going to need to learn a language like R or, or Python or Julia um, because you're going to run into to walls and you're also not going to be standing up something that's, that's reproducible for yourself and for others in the future. And um, one anecdote that I liked from, from your summarization of this blog post was saying that you're not a point-and-click person However, you and I just do make shiny apps so that others can point and click all day long. <laughs> sort, of, sort of a little bit of an irony, but I love it. We love our irony on this podcast, but uh, my point and click interfaces work well. Yeah, wink, wink, nun, nudge. <laughs> That's right. Yes. And, and uh, no one fat fingering a value on one sheet is going to affect uh, the, the charts and tables on another sheet. Yes, well said. In our shiny apps, yep, yes. Yep. And, you know, let's be realistic, especially those of us in the industry are dealing with collaborators that give us data that was collected in Excel. You can't avoid it all the time. But as I mentioned earlier, there is a boatload of options to import your Excel data into R. Again, we'll plug packages like Read Excel from the Tidyverse team. Also, one that I think deserves more praise is OpenXLXX2, which is a reimagination of the one with the, without the two in the name that uses C++ on the back end to do efficient importing 
of Excel files. I've had great success with that as well. So getting your data into R from Excel is now a very solved problem, in my opinion. And of course, one reason that's been solved across not just R, but in Python and, and other open source languages is that a lot of these, these spreadsheets and also other Office products are made with the open office uh, schema, which is an XML-based format. You wouldn't know it by opening it, but that's why you see the X at the end of like DOCX or XOSX or PPTX like that. When that happened, that enabled a lot of innovation. So I have to credit, um, I know it's that's been a long effort to get that up and running. So credit to, to the open source community for making that happen. And then honestly, the other part is, yes, there may be times where your output does have to be something in Excel because that just happens to be how people like to consume results. But again, with R, you can write to Excel just as easily as read from it if you need to, but hopefully you don't. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> well, enough of my, uh, you might say, polite uh, ribbing on Excel formats, but there's a lot more awesome resources to share in this week's our weekly highlights issue and so we'll take a couple minutes here for our additional finds and as someone who's been building some very very complex workflows that have to do with analyzing and perhaps uh, transforming statistical p-values this highlight or this um, additional find does have me thinking i really need to do this in one of my apps i will admit is it useful uh, your opinion may vary, but this great blog post from Rasmuth Both has is called p-value bowling. Yes, we have combined bowling with p-values because he hooked in thanks to our studio's viewer tab a way to run a t-test, and then if the p-value is successful, you get a nice visual of a strike happening right in your viewer tab. And you know what happens when you get a p-value above 0.05. You can imagine that. So that's an epic fail, folks. But yes, I am seriously contemplating putting this in one of my apps as an Easter egg for someone to discover. This is just awesome stuff. I absolutely love it. So kudos to Ramoth for giving me a great idea here. <laughs> but, uh, that is a riot. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, Mike, what did you find? I'm not sure if you can top P-value bowling, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I almost, I came very close to releasing a package on Cran that had just one function uh, called sponge case that would just create, uh, take any text string that you had and uh, alternate between uppercase and lowercase um, each letter. I don't know if you have, have ever seen those memes. Oh, I've but, seen uh, them plenty. And frankly, that deserves to be on CRAN, just saying. <laughs> For some reason, uh, your p-value bowling package reminded me of that one. Uh, maybe I'll resurrect it. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I did find a small, short, little blog post uh, by Iwe Zia, which is on converting inline footnotes to regular footnotes in Markdown. Um, he talks about how after using Hugo for his personal website for like six years, he finally decided to upgrade uh, the version of Hugo that he was using. And he had to convert his inline footnotes in Markdown to regular footnotes because uh, the new version of Hugo doesn't support uh, the the former type of footnotes. Ooh. So he, yeah, I can imagine. So uh, <laughs> he 
created this nice little loop that loops through all of his blog post files, which is thousands of posts, he says, um, to convert the regular footnotes to markdown footnotes. And there are a couple funny comments uh, within the code, some Easter eggs along the way with all of the regular expressions that he is wrangling with to do this. But uh, it, it's it's worth checking out if you are someone who writes a lot of scientific uh, documentation that contains footnotes and you need to convert them from uh, regular footnotes to markdown footnotes. Yeah, Ihui does it again with making his life easier, but going through the pains to make the rest of our lives easier too. <laughs> yes, this is very much, yes, in that vein. Yeah, and um, I will admit one of the reasons I like this um, recent kick I've been on the past couple of years of my kind of containerized development setup is that in my Docker file for, say, the site for my Shiny Developer Series, or um, yes, my um, kind of dormant R podcast, I do pin the Hugo version in the manifest so that, I dictate when to upgrade. Now, I'm sure it was a choice for him too, but yes, I have seen lots of pain that can happen when you upgrade to a, a much uh, later version if you've been sticking to the same previous version. In fact, Mike, a little inside baseball for our, our listeners here, I tried to upgrade the version of the Markdown Collaborative Notes platform that Mike and I use for our show notes. And yeah, I completely borked it because of esoteric reasons. So I had to roll back to that while well, I troubleshoot it. I think I've solved it, by the way. So, yeah, you'll be a benefit of that next week. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice the difference. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good thing. That means I'm the one that went through all the all the wars of that debugging nightmare with a console log. So, yes, but you won't have any nightmare reading this great issue from Colin Fay. He does a terrific job assembling more great tutorials, new packages coming through. And, and even some great spotlights at community events as well. Um, this isn't, I didn't have time to talk about this in my additional fine, but there's some great, uh, great links in the um, upcoming events to talk about how you can get involved with being an R contributor to like the base R. There's some great events coming if you want to get involved with that program. So look at the issue, the full issue for all the links to get involved as well. And of course, we love hearing from all of you around the world listening. If you're an R Weekly fan, you like this podcast, or hopefully both, you can get in touch with us via the contact page. It's the link directly into this episode's show notes, as well as contributing your recent find. Maybe it's a new package you created, a great blog post you found. Every R, every R Weekly issue is created with Markdown, so R Markdown all the time. Eway famously said, if you can't learn Markdown in five minutes, he would give you $5. You didn't have to pay anybody at that conference when he said that. So that should tell you that should tell you that Markdown is the way to go. So every resource is just a little Markdown syntax away. We have a pull request. We'd love to hear from you. And also, if you want to get in touch with us through that fancy new podcast app you've downloaded, maybe it's Podverse or Fountain or others, you can send us a boost along the way to give us your little shout out for the show. And we'll read your feedback directly on the air. But uh, you can also get in touch with us on the social media links out there. Spor I'm sporadically on Twitter with at the RCast, but more fully on Mastodon these days with at our podcast at podcastindex.social. Mike, where can the listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, likewise, uh, Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. And on Mastodon at... Uh, 
Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Awesome stuff. And again, we love hearing from you. So please keep the great feedback coming. And as usual, our weekly never stops and neither do we. <laughs> but we'll be back next week with episode 114 of the Our Weekly Highlights. Until then, have a great day and enjoy your R weekly reading and listening pleasure. We'll see you next time.